Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So glad to be with you. I just pray you're having a fantastic day. I don't know where you're at in life right now or even what you're doing as you're listening to the podcast, but I am just grateful. I just want you to know before I jumped here to record here in the studio of this podcast that we're praying for you, whatever you're going through in your in your life at church, in your marriage, with your kids, so just know that if you have a prayer request, please, you can submit them at info at org, and we'd be glad to be praying for you. And if you have any questions, you know, you can always go to our website and you can even drop us a note at info at org. that's available there for you with other resources that we have, the YouTube channel, um, several books that I have been blessed to write So take advantage of those kind of things. And as always, every podcast, my study notes are available. So you can also take advantage of that as you go deeper into God's word. So today is podcast 90 and we are now entering on Tuesday. Now, I just want to forewarn you, I have about 32 pages worth of notes for Tuesday of Passion Week. So this is more likely going to turn into three different parts because I don't want to just rush through this. Let's sit, let's meditate. This is a busy day that Jesus had on Tuesday. A lot of challenges, a lot of parables, a lot of things going on. So as always, you can check out any of the archives if you missed what we talked about on Monday. Again, it was a busy day, a lot going on. So we pick things up now here on Tuesday. The first lesson is Jesus looks at this withering fig tree. And this is found in Matthew 21, verses 20 through 22 in Mark chapter 11, 20 through 26. So let's look at Mark's account and kind of understand the withering fig tree. Now, if you remember the day before, Jesus came upon this fig tree. And this is a symbol of Israel being barren because the fig tree looked like it was producing some buds that he can eat off of like a lot of sojourners, travelers would do and peasants, but there was none. And he curses the tree while the following day, notice what happens here now in verse 20 of Mark chapter 11. And as they, the disciples passed by in the morning, they saw, they marveled because the same fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before had withered away to its roots. And verse 21, and Peter remembered, meaning he was reminded and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, it's important to point out that in Matthew 21, verse 20, it doesn't separate the mornings as Mark mentions here in chapter 11, verse 20. So as the disciples, they were returning to Jerusalem, they see that withered fig tree in Mark 11, 12 through 14. And of course, they were shocked to see that it was completely dried up from the day before. Now, notice how Jesus responds to his disciples in verse 22. He answers them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, it's interesting that 
Jesus uses the withering fig tree to tell his disciples essentially that you need to have this type of faith. You didn't believe that when I cursed it, that the next day was going to be completely withered. So they marveled at that there. there was, they, their minds are blown away by what Jesus had done. And he's saying to them, you need to trust and obey me. Remember the whole symbolism behind the fig tree was it was fruitless like Israel. Now to bear fruit, you have to have faith, faith in God. You need to trust him. You need to obey him that he who is mighty will do mighty things in and through them. And so Jesus was saying, that's the kind of faith you need to have. Now this phrase be taken and thrown into the sea Moving mountains was a very common phraseology, if you will, in the Jewish culture. It was a way of them saying, hey, you can remove difficult things in your life. So Jesus was saying, taking that phrase, saying to them, hey, if you have faith, you can do great things. And he says here now, whenever you stand praying, forgive. So as you pray, you have to have faith. But also as you pray standing, notice he says you need to forgive. Now, the reason he connects the two, faith and forgiveness, is faith has to exercise forgiveness. You see, sometimes forgiveness, as a matter of fact, most of the time, right, forgiveness is the most difficult challenge for us to overcome in our lives. Listen how Wearsby explains this particular lesson. He says, but Jesus also used the miracle to teach his disciples some practical lessons about faith and prayer. Mountains represent great difficulties that must be removed, Zechariah 4, 7. And it is our faith in God that enables us to overcome. But faith in God is not enough. We must also have forgiveness towards others. We do not earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others, but forgiving others shows that we have a humble heart before God. So Jesus takes this withered fig tree and he says, you need to have faith to do great things. And one of the great things that you can do as my disciples who would become apostles is bear the forgiveness that I have given mankind on the cross. So now as they enter into Jerusalem, notice in Matthew 21, 23 through 27, Mark 11, 27 through 33, in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, the Sanhedrin now question the authority of Jesus. So what I want to do is I'm just going to examine Luke chapter 20 because Matthew and Mark are very similar. So here in Luke chapter 20, verse one, it says one day, which is Tuesday, as Jesus was teaching, he was providing instruction to the people in the temple in preaching the gospel, proclaiming good news. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up, meaning, meaning they stood up against him and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you such authority? So you could see this coordinated attack by the Sanhedrin because remember up to this point, they failed all the plotting, all the attempts to arrest him, to pick up stones, to stone him, it's failed. So while Jesus is here publicly teaching in the temple, the elite representing the Sanhedrin, they approach and they challenge Jesus to prove his authority. Now, it's important to point out that when it says here that he was in the temple preaching, it was very customary for open debate, public confrontations to take place in the temple. And at, in, in this kind of surrounding, in this setting, both sides had the opportunity to oppose one another and exercise their knowledge and also their authority. And so what the Sanhedrin is doing here is they're going out of their way to pick on this poor rabbi in public, he has a crowd of people around him and they're going to try to challenge his authority. 
So Jesus answers literally means he replies with a question to separate them. He asks, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now in Mark 11 verse 30, it says that he said, answer me this. So here Jesus's answer is conditioned on their honesty in responding to his question about John. Jesus wasn't playing games with the leaders. He was simply exercising a commonly used practice of Jewish teaching. In fact, if the Sanhedrin used the knowledge that they had of scripture and they objectively examined the office of John the Baptist, what conclusion would they come to? That Jesus's authority, what? Comes from God. Thus, in essence, answering their very question. And so notice it says here, as they were discussing it among themselves, they're saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Verse seven. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, verse eight, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now notice the Sanhedrin, they make this thing into a spectacle. They challenge Jesus in public and notice the question he poses back to them. It causes them to have to deliberate among themselves, making them look very foolish. Literally in the Greek here, as they discussed it with one another, they're taking a long time figuring this out. Now, obviously most Jews believe that John was a prophet and yet the onlookers, they're looking at the elite leaders, the people that they are to aspire to be like, and they're noticing that as they're debating over a simple truth, they couldn't even figure it out. And in one, one, in one sense, they're saying, if we say that he was a prophet and we reject that, then the people will stone us. So the crowd regarded John as a prophet. They knew that the people believed that John was a prophet. And to think any less of that would constitute stoning, which pointed out that the Sanhedrin, they weren't above prophets of God. That matter of fact, that the, the, the simple peasant Jew knew more about the prophets than they did. And so if they rejected that, they would be rejecting the authority of the son of God because John the Baptist said, this is the son of God. Glenn Hughes writes it like this. He says, if you do not recognize authority when you see it, he said, in effect, no amount of arguing will convince you of it, end quote. It's like when you are in a debate with someone or someone's challenging the credibility of Christianity and you say, listen, if I were to prove to you that Christianity is true, would you convert to Christianity? Would you become a Christian? If they say no, then why bother? And in essence, that's what's happening here. They don't ask the question because they're curious and they're wanting to know the facts. They're asking the question because they're trying to belittle or they're trying to put Jesus down or they're trying to prove something. But yet in the end, they don't trap him. He entraps them because of their own stubbornness. So what Jesus does now is he takes the opportunity to tell a series of parables. And there's three parables that he tells in a row. And the first one is the two sons that are in the vineyard. This is found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. So here in verse 28, Jesus asks the question, what do you think? It literally means, how does it seem to you? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. So here Jesus poses a question before the audience in front of the elite. And he gives them a parable about a vineyard. And he does this because he wants to garner a response that would indict the hearers. And he does this by 
referencing a vineyard. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's referring back to Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. And he's pointing out two things. Number one, that Israel, you lack fruit. And two, that you lack servants or tenants who are willing to do the work. So now notice in verses 29 and 30 how both sons respond. The first answers, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, meaning he regretted it and he went. And in verse 30, the other son said to the father, I go, sir, but he did not go. So here Jesus is setting forth these two sons. The one son says, I'm not going to do it, but then he does do it and he obeys. While the other said he was going to do it, but then he doesn't. So the truth of this parable is very obvious. The father has a right to call his sons, who is the owner of the land, of the vineyard, to do the work that it required. So the question that Jesus poses them in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? This was an obvious response, an obvious answer. And of course, they said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, meaning they enter, they proceed into the kingdom of God before you. So the obedient son represents sinners who repent and turn to God. And the second son represents religiosity, meaning they profess, but they don't practice. They believe, but they do not labor or bear fruit. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, he's exposing to the Sanhedrin. You ask me this question about authority. You can't even answer a simple question. I give you a simple parable. You rightly answer, but yet you still refuse because of your unbelief and your disobedience. You don't see this transformative power that is taking place that he's been demonstrating for quite some time on earth and how many prostitutes and tax collectors, people that religiosity can't even save, and yet Jesus is saving them. These most unlikely characters, they're repenting. And still the Sanhedrin rejects Jesus and they remain defiant in the rebellion. You go back to John chapter 7, verses 29 through 30. Remember it said, and when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. John MacArthur writes, The idea that repentant tax collectors and harlots would enter the kingdom before outwardly religious hypocrites was a reoccurring theme in Jesus' ministry, and this infuriated the Jewish leaders. Verse 32 for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds, meaning you didn't relent, you didn't regret and believe in him. So this parable that Jesus tells them in front of the audience was predicated on the denial of the Sanhedrin's rejection of Jesus as Messiah. M.S. Mills says this, quote, In this parable, Jesus actually provided part of the answer to their question about his authority. For here he reminded them that they had been introduced by the appropriate forerunner, John the Baptist, in verse 32. This was part of his authority. He had come to Israel by the God-ordained route, for the prophesied forerunner had preceded Jesus and identified him to the nation, as well as to its leaders as the Son of God, end quote. So right in front of them, they're denying him. And yet he's saying, you know the truth, even as I tell you these parables. But that's not it. 
Jesus now transitions into his second parable, the vine dressers. And this is found in Matthew 21, 33 through 46, Mark 12, 1 through 12, and Luke 29 through 19. Once again, all the synoptics are pretty much similar. So I'm just going to jump and read Matthew 21, 33 through 46. It says here, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence, a boundary wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So again, in this second parable, notice Jesus said in verse 33, hear another parable. So he's, he's in the process of teaching them and they're listening. And then he closes by posing this question, what will the master do to those tenants who killed his servants and then killed his son? Now, the first parable had to do with their denial. The second parable has to do with them committing murder. Jesus tells this second parable to highlight the tragedy of how often his prophets were killed by their own people. You go back to 1 Kings 22 verse 24. 2 Chronicles 24, verse 20, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 30. So the parable is very clear. They understand what Jesus is pointing at. Before he was saying how the wretched people, the tax collectors, the, the prostitutes, they're repenting and coming to God and being saved. You're not. And now he gives them this example as you are like these tenants who are killing off prophets and they even kill the son, pointing, of course, to Jesus because in Jewish parables, the landowner uh, often and more often than not represented God. So it was very clear to the Jewish leaders, the meaning of this parable. The landowner was already within his rights, as Jesus told this parable, to kill the tenants because of treachery, taking ownership of the land and killing his servants. But it shows the mercy of the landowner by sending his son to negotiate. It, it's, a, 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 it's almost like an action of kindness and gentleness that was being measured and taken by the landowner. And yet, still despite that, they kill him. This shows that the landowner was willing to risk even his son in order to bring peace and resolution to the people. I find this extraordinary because even in the midst of how they're mistreating Jesus, they want him dead he gives them a parable. He points out their denial. He points out their sin, but he also gives them a parable showing the mercy and the kindness and the long suffering, the patience. M.S. Mills says this, this parable is very rich in Jewish symbolism. So we should identify its components. The planting of the vineyard and the building of a wall around it are the establishment of Jerusalem. The tower could be the house of David. The vineyard is Jerusalem rather than Israel because in Matthew 21 verse 39, it identifies as the place of Jesus's murder. But Jerusalem here becomes analogous to Washington, D.C., the capital representing the nation. The owner of the vineyard is, of course, God, the servants, the prophets he sent to Israel, and the beloved son is Jesus Christ. The murder of the son represents the crucifixion, 
which was to take place just two days hence. Note, this parable prophesied that Jesus would be cast out of Jerusalem for his execution, according to Matthew 21, 39 and Luke 20, verse 15, end quote. Now notice how the crowd responds, that is the religious leaders. They said to him, verse 41, he will put those wretcheds to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits and their seasons. So the Jewish leaders, they condemn the people in the parable by giving the response that Jesus was looking for. So in verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So in the first parable, going back to Matthew 21, 28 through 32, Jesus called out their disobedience, right? In the second parable, Jesus now calls out their rebellion that would lead to the crucifixion of him. And the Jewish leaders, remember, they wanted Jesus to be killed. They didn't care. They didn't want to give up their ruling office. And so he's pointing that out saying, the stone that the builders have rejected, if you go back during Passover, they would, they would read Psalms 113 to 118 and they would be sung, right? And Jesus here quotes Psalm 118, 22 through 23. So it would have been fresh in their minds. So he's providing context. He's saying, I am the chief cornerstone. You are rejecting the very foundation of your scriptures. And when you go back on Palm Sunday, remember the crowd, they were shouting Psalm 118, verse 26, when Jesus entered the Jerusalem, they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. They're rejecting that. They're rejecting the fulfillment of the Messiah right before them. So Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. That's the Greek word ethni, every nation or generation producing its fruit. Verse 44, and the one who falls, meaning struck or beaten on the stone, which refers to Jesus, will be broken to pieces, meaning they'll be destroyed. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, meaning eternal judgment. So Jesus prophesies that the church is going to come and judgment will befall his people and those who reject him will be punished and they will receive eternal judgment. And of course, there'll be the final judgment on the Gentiles, uh, the Gentile nations that is when he returns in his second coming. So packed in these two little verses is a lot of rich eschatology to come. Now, one commentary writes, often in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a rock or a stone, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, Deuteronomy 32, 18, Psalm 18, verse 2, verse 31, verse 46. And the stone is also a messianic title. So to Israel, Jesus was a stumbling stone, Isaiah 8, 14 through 15, Romans 9, 32 through 33. And Israel rejected the Messiah. But in his death and resurrection, he created the church. To the church, Jesus is the foundation stone, the head of the corner, according to Ephesians 2, verse 20 through 22 and 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. At the end of the age, Jesus will come as a smiting stone, according to Daniel 2, verse 34, destroy Gentile kingdoms and establish his own glorious kingdom, end quote. So as I mentioned before, Right there at the end of this second parable is rich with prophetic meaning. So here in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. You're thinking, duh, who else do you think? You're the one that started this. You're the one that confronted him early on Tuesday morning and questioned his authority. And you can even answer a simple question. 
In verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So clearly, the crowd's belief in Jesus and also in John the Baptist was intensifying. So you see this this growth of belief. And I think that's important because oftentimes people, they say, oh, man, they're, they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord in Psalm 118. And then they're, they're chanting, crucify him. Well, that's mainly the religious leaders. A lot of the Jewish people and the Greeks that converted to Judaism, they're believing in Jesus. So that's important to point out. Now, the third parable is a marriage feast, and this is found in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. So Jesus is not through with them because it says, and again, he spoke to them in parables saying, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they could not come. So here we see right off the bat that this third parable continues with this rejection of Israel and what happens to the kingdom after the rejection of the Messiah. Go back to Luke 14, verses 16 through 23. So Israel remains fruitless, right? And the Gentile nations through the resurrection, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the, of the, of the Holy Scriptures, they will start believing in the name of Jesus and they will start bearing much fruit. And you can go to Romans chapter 9 through 11 and you see this magnificent blend between Jews and now Gentiles are being converted. And you go back to the day of Pentecost when this started to unfold. So it's obvious that the king here, once again, is God, the son is Jesus, and the servants are marked as prophets or messengers of God through different points of history. So in verse four, when he says, and again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now this fattened calf could feed over a hundred plus people. So this is an indication that the king was expecting a massive crowd of people to attend. Again, symbolically, what this is pointing to is God's love reaching the world. Verse five, but they paid no attention, meaning they made light of, they disregarded, they neglected, they rejected and went off one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, disgracefully and killed them. So again, Jesus is telling a parable of a lot of violence here, depicting again, Israel, killing the prophets and eventually crucifying Jesus. So this shows the utter sin. It shows the shame. So again, we got, we saw denial, we saw this murderous intent and heart, and now we see this utter sin and shamefulness of Israel and their complete disregard for their king. And so much so that they killed them all off, putting them responsible under death because of their actions. And so the king was so angry that he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So once again, in Jesus' parables, he's prophesying of things to come. And in this point in the parable, Jesus is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 by the hands of the Romans. And then verse eight here says, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So the first guests, they dishonor the king. So he says in verse nine, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So because of the rejection of the formal guests, it gave opportunity for a new group of people to come join the celebration. What does that sound like? The Jews rejected their Messiah. The nation of Israel collectively rejected Jesus. And yet his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his atoning sacrifice was not just limited to the Jewish people, but also to the world. In verse 10, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. It literally means he was not dressed in a wedding garment. And verse 12, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So this whole situation now with this one guy not wearing a wedding garment and then casting him out and he's speechless and talking about gnashing of teeth and outer darkness gets very confusing. Now, let me just point out a couple of things, kind of bring context to what Jesus is saying. Oftentimes in a wedding feast of this magnitude, remember this was a large party that was taking place. Many people would arrive outside the gates and what they would do is they would dress up in appropriate attire because they're hoping that they would be invited in. So this man, on the other hand, he didn't have a wedding garment and it was a sign of insult to the host and also to the guests. So this phrase that he was speechless, it carries the idea that this man deliberately avoids responding to the king because he has no loyal to the king. Now, if he was loyal, he would have responded and the host, because it was, it was proper, would provide attire for this guest then, especially if they were of low class. Therefore, it's quite clear, according to this parable, that this man simply came to take advantage of the situation. He wasn't there to celebrate in the marriage celebration, this wedding feast. He was there as an imposter. So what Jesus is pointing out is that even as the gospel spreads, there are going to be people who are going to take the invitation, but they're not going to care to believe in it, to be part of the celebration. Again, this goes back to them in the beginning of the day, questioning Jesus's authority. Now, one last thing to make mention here on this parable, a lot of commentaries and scholars believe that this actual parable of the marriage feast is the future feast of the wedding feast recorded in Revelation 19 verses 1 through 10. I kind of think that that is the case for several reasons. One, as I was mentioning earlier, notice the eschatology that is embedded in these parables as Jesus is talking about their denial, their rejection of the gospel. But also later in the same day, Jesus goes into the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And so I think the cohesion of Jesus's teaching on Tuesday is really about eschatology. So that's important to note because it puts Jesus's teaching in proper context because I do believe that each day there was a particular ultimate theme, if you will, an objective that he had to convey to his followers and also to the religious leaders before he died on the cross. So there you have it, my friends. I think we're going to end it there today. I pray this has been a blessing to you. Thank you guys for your faithfulness. Continue to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not just through this time that we have together, but pray that God will continue through the power of his spirit, bring many people to saving faith, that people like you listening will be grounded, that you'll be standing strong, you'll be storing up his word in your heart that you might not sin against him and take what you learn here on this podcast and reach other people in the love, truth, and grace of Jesus Christ. Love you guys. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.